So, welcome to a new episode of DevSecOps Talks with me, Matthias, uh, Andre and Julian. Uh, today we will talk about supply chains part two, and for that we have two guests with us. Uh, welcome to the show. Uh, we will start with you, Nutsan. Uh, who are you, and what's your interest in supply chain? Okay, so uh, hi, Nitsan Ziv. Uh, I'm one of the founders of Ox Security. We are a software supply chain security company. And before starting Ox Security, 10 years as the vice president of cybersecurity at uh, Checkpoint. So I uh, experienced this uh, firsthand and been doing this for almost 25 years. So are you still using Checkpoint firewalls now at home? or? <laughs> First of all, yes. Uh, <laughs> companies that I, I care about and love and I think that one of the best products in the market. So uh, personally, <laughs> I love them. Okay. Andre, you, you want to bring something in? I'm... I'm curious about the business model for the supply chain security company. How that would work? Would it be like a JFrog offering with an X-ray or? So think about what, what, it. What, what is the idea? <laughs> so think about it that the, the software supply chain starts from uh, the configuration of your Git up until the moment that your code is running in production to the cloud. So, um, Artifact registry will definitely be part of the ecosystem. Git posture would be part of it. Open source security, CI/CD structure, artifact integrity. And just imagine that there are so many different cubicles that if you go back throughout the year and think about, or let's say five years, let's take the 300 software supply chain attacks that happened and you try to map them on the CI/CD, you're going to see a lot of different hits hitting different places on the map. Yeah. And what we're trying to do is actually figure out, okay, let's think about it as one chunk of software supply chain and how can we protect it from the beginning to the end with existing uh, security tools that you have or without them. Cool. I hope it makes sense. Cool. We can dig deeper. We have another guest, guys. Iso, welcome yeah. to the show. Yes. We are old friends from Enterprise, right? Hi, everyone. Yeah, we, um, yeah, Matthias and I used to work at Enterprise uh, together. My name is Aisha. Uh, I'm a senior platform security engineer at um, justeattakeaway.com. Um, and I've been with the company nearly two years now. And I've got security experience for about six years now. Yeah. Um, so, what kind of supply chain attacks uh, do you know about and, and work with? Um, so, currently, uh, I work in a large, complex organization, so all the kinds that are out there, uh, we may have uh, impact from it. So, this will be third-party software providers, where we have a third-party actually providing software, website builders, um, which you may or may not be using as third-party. Um, most sort of... Uh, popular topic and most complex to handle is the uh, third-party data stores as you know how, how do you, how do you mean third-party data store i mean you're storing your data at the third party and they or is you you including some third-party libraries or libraries yeah data libraries. Stores, they could be libraries and yeah. Yeah, for example it could be um that you're using um yeah. Um, third-party con um, container images and, and things like that. So yeah. uh, not just from a, a code perspective, but also uh, what it would mean, what the exploit could mean from yeah. a platform perspective, which is where I come in most yeah. of the time. 
Um, others are like watering hole attacks and stuff, but you know, not personally had first-hand experience with them. But water hole is like, what is that now again? It's like you have uh, you 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 have something to, to lure developers right to download something. No. They target a website um, oh, yeah. to perform like sensitive tasks, and then it will. Um, you're trying to get it to spit out sensitive information. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To deliver malware to site visitors or um, your customers, if you're a company providing that. Yeah, um, like the one you sent to to Mac users. Like Mac is crap. Windows is the best. Log in here with your Git account to verify you're using Mac. And then you get everybody's uh, GitHub accounts, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Sometimes you put in all the processes in place. <laughs> you have everything complex and the compromised account kills it all. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Saving password browsers, I heard, is also a great thing. Uh, so when we talk about... This is... We talked about before on supply chain, and so we know a little bit about them. But uh, uh, how... How can we structure like the the protection? Let's talk more about how we can pre- protect things here. And so you want to help us out with? Uh, do we have some tools or how can you detect that? Uh, how yeah, can you sure. f- how can you find uh, supply? There's so many different types of them, right? From uh, libraries that uh, are copy but not really, and to just crypto miners. So. Uh, yeah, it goes all over the place with uh, crypto jacking down to credentials that are being stolen, to passwords, to open source like we discussed, and uh, wrong repository links. So it is actually very endless. And yeah. I'll, I'll maybe start one step backwards because the reason that software supply chain attacks became so popular in the recent uh, probably say five years, it is one of the most lucrative ways to hack a company. So the the attack surface is huge. It is usually not the core competency of the security team. Most would come from networking or GRC and OPSEC um, is one of the places that usually it's not one of the oldest fundamentals of the team. Yeah, Uh, It's a great attack way. And once you carry out an attack surface of um, a software supply chain, you usually get access to sub-companies, sub-attack vectors, uh, and it widens the attack vector. Yeah. So what I would recommend is that there's a great framework called Oscar framework. We are part of the uh, initiating group of this um, endeavor. That what we've done over there is we took over 300 software supply chain attacks that happened over the past five years, and we broke them down to the TTPs, the techniques, tactics, and procedures used by bad guys to actually um, get to the software supply chain attack. It is uh, fully open source on GitHub and in the site pbom.dev, pbom.dev. And what you have over there is mind map saying, let's start with reconnaissance stage at the left, then to the initial access, uh, persistency, initial access, uh, sorry, uh, the the lateral movement, and then to damages. And in each one of the stages, you've got actually, what are the things that you should be thinking about? Yeah. So is it the credentials? Is it the users? And if you walk by a map that maps everything that you know in the industry, it gives you an idea about 
how should you uh, address the findings yeah. and stuff? Are you seeing that when I think about supply chain, I think those, uh, like you say, like broader attacks, like crypto miners and thousands of companies, but you see them also targeting one company, like. Uh, yeah, we had a great example with uh, Circle CI recently. Yeah. Um, they were specifically targeted as a company. The reconnaissance was relatively easy. Um, and from that moment on, they carried an attack specifically on that company. Okay. Yeah. So multiple examples. Uh, I think that uh, places that you've got open source that uh, propagated to crypto wallets, you've got attacks on that company. You've got, of course, SoloWings and CodeCov. It's got to be huge. It's really all over the place. Yeah. So, so uh, yeah, it's, it's mind-blowing, right, to see how, how easy it's becoming to to, uh, to get all this. But I think always go back to, to like... Uh, the way I install packages on my uh, on my Linux server, uh, server. I just apt, and we don't have any issues with with it there because they they like examine all the packages that you download if you don't use any bad package. But isn't it the uh, uh, the openness of of the new world when you can pull Docker images and you can pull libraries from uh, npm or pip uh, that brings the problem with supply chain uh, to us. I want to comment that yeah. it's not really becoming a, like a becoming reality as a new problem. Yeah. The problem being there from the day one, isn't it? If you've been working for any type of enterprise, you had grumpy configuration managers saying like all that open source software, but before <laughs> that concern was a licensing, right? Yeah. Well, that's why you had the white source scanners and stuff like yeah. that. That would prevent developers from linking GPL software with the proprietary code. Yeah. Um, there were cases where the, actually the most proprietary code was discovered and it was using the GPL license code, and then there was court cases and so on. Anyhow, uh, still there was a lot of complaint about open source software. But the only things that have changed now is that. We came from very cautious enterprises to the companies going headlong into this without <laughs> yeah. thinking much of what they're doing. So it just became a norm. Before that, like, I think 10 years ago, you could read about Google building all the jar files they use in their software from source and not pulling that from Maven Central. So they've been doing that for a long time. It's just for the rest of us to catch up and realize that, well, the good, the bad guys are looking for the ways in. Now they found this yeah. one and the door is open. And if to add to that, I think that it's being used by governments, probably say six, uh, since uh, not Petya in uh, 2017, if I recall. Uh, so yeah. we've seen the, exactly the techniques that you mentioned, Andre, being used and weaponized uh, for almost five or six years right now. So uh, I think there is a lot of actors in the scenario we describe. And when we're talking about a, a customer, I mean, is the peop the company who has developer and those developer use third party libraries. But nowadays we also have services that we use and those services have developer that use third party libraries and probably even the code <laughs> from other customer as well. 
if you are like a, a CI platform or you, you build code, you execute the code that you don't know the provenance. And we, we are in this game about knowing like who owns what and who, who is responsible for that. Do you have any take on that? So I have a take on that, but um, I would do a comparison to food uh, or maybe your car, for example. So think about it that your car is built from thousands of components that were developed by hundreds of different factories and assembled in different places worldwide. You have no idea what happens when you press your brakes. You just trust the system that every part <laughs> is designed in the right place to actually do that. But in, meaning nobody knows all the details. There's no way in the, in the human brain to contain all of this. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So, so it's not a yeah. machine. It's not for human to, to solve. It's just too too many things. So that we need to rely on machines to do the, that verification for us. Is that what you're? I'm saying that, uh, and maybe it's a different discussion. But I think that the really disruption that we are seeing right now with uh, all the LLM models, yeah. I think it might be a different way to find this problem. But I think it's still a few years down the road right now, everybody's just sprinkling a bit of uh, LLM or ChatGPT on, on things and uh, <laughs> hoping that the magic will work. But uh, I think that uh, we, we're just scratching the surface right now. But, but is that the, the approach you're taking here? I mean, uh, you can't really stop, you know, uh, developer things from bringing stuff, right? So you're more controlling like when they in the pipeline or where you build it, an uh, environment where you own or can control to uh, start uh, the detection in, in that environment. So I wanted to. <laughs> can I say something very quickly? Just, just I, I just want to give a additional perspective here, so we yeah. have a broader picture, right? Because right now we taking a stance as defenders, so we have organizations that are trying to protect yeah. from bad things happening, but at the same time we could look at. Uh, from another end, I mean, from where the software came. So we have uh, open source developers who are underappreciated and underpaid, maintaining libraries, and there is a huge enterprise demanding security from those poor guys who maintain something in their free time. I like there was like openness, take openness as well. How, how many developers are they? And everyone using it. Yeah. And then people do demand having a having ha having a proper security without really paying much for that so there is this as one of the sources yes that i deliberately injected poisoned libraries to the package managers and, and now we have to be talking is it the problem of the packet manager maybe who is not really doing verific any kind of verification any kind of security and just delivers you whatever you ask it to deliver so I, I would say it's a very complicated issue. There are a lot of things in play here. And while, yes, we are on the defending side, and this was important for us, I think it's important to recognize that there are many players and we need to think as a community what we could do, not only to defend our enterprise, but also what we could do to change the whole equation. And to add that, Julian has an open source project which is rarely used and not that founded. So if there are some companies that want to found his lingo, uh, you can go there, right? 
if this is part of things that um, that, that are interesting, there is an, an interesting open source that we are involved with called Megalinter that is actually taking a lot of the tools out there from uh, other open sources and just grouping them to single Docker and, and execution NPM. With a single execution, you can actually activate it and scan everything that you've got in your code and pipeline. Um, I would say it, it's more for developers that are starting their way, but we also have uh, huge companies uh, working on this uh, on this open source. So uh, shout out to Nicholas that, that is actually uh, organizing this project. Yeah, it brings a, a little bit of question of, um, well, it's not only for vulnerabilities, but there are those vulnerability databases out there. And they are not always, like, they don't give the same results. So the some database will give will tell you, hey, this library is a vulnerability, but with another tool, it won't tell you. And my question to you is in that space is like, what are the incentive of people to go find and report those vulnerabilities to those database, and when they do, which one to choose? So um, I'd probably say that there are three major uh, ways to do that. So the easiest and, and I think the most lucrative one is if you've got a bug bounty program as a company, then you would go to this bug bounty, report it, get uh, a nice recognition and, and some kind of a reward. I think that's uh, very common uh, to do. The second stage is if you don't have a bug bounty program, uh, in this case, usually people would simply report it, get a CV number. Uh, most of the people that I work with and know, uh, they're not doing it for the bug bounty. Uh, they're not a red team doing it from home. They are doing it for the recognition and making sure that the community is open. Yeah. And, and there is a <clears throat> sorry, third kind, which reported but uh, to arenas like uh, Zerodium, where you're actually reporting it to a place that might be sold to Places that it might uh, do damages, uh, I won't say it, it's a white hat uh, economy in, in many cases. Sometimes it is, sometimes it, not necessarily. So it, it ranges in, in those uh, three cases. Uh, the incentive starts with recognition, money, and big money uh, in most cases. I'm not sure if you're tracking arenas like Zerodium, but some of the vulnerabilities out there are getting a price tag of about $2.5 uh, million per vulnerability uh, for a zero-day export. Yeah. So yeah. if you've got impressive things like VM escape and iOS jailbreak and things like that, that's worth a huge amount of money. Yeah, yeah if, you, if you have no no click. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, execution, execution stuff, then, then you can sell that. To Apple, Apple actually gives quite a lot for, for iOS. Or you have an NSO group. I think that they also might buy. Um, I, I'm not sure. I, mean, I know that there are a lot of groups that buy those kind of things and governments mm -hmm. buy those kind of things. And there are additional arenas in the dark web. Um, but yeah, I'd probably say this is a, a small percentage uh, of what we see out there. And you've got cases like uh, hacking groups that somehow get all of the information leaked to the internet. And then you've got yeah. government-grade tools uh, being accessible to everybody uh, just by going to GitHub and seeing examples of uh, how do I break a very famous uh, server, and it happens probably once a quarter right now. Yeah, it's leaking a lot. 
So, so we have like the the code base. We have uh, as, I, I'm as, I'm a developer of write code. I import third party libraries. We have a pipeline. Who are the players in this uh, uh, party we have here with supply chains, Andre? I, I, I have a very random perspective on okay. this, but listen me <laughs> up. I, let, let, let's step back a little bit here, right? So we're getting some exploit coming through a library being compiled into our microservice, and then when microservice gets executed on your EC2 instance, Docker container, what have you, so there is a little bit of additional code running. And I tell you, so what? I mean, what's new about that? Yeah. Imagine someone breaking in through the front door. I mean, if it exposes HTTP API and someone hacks that HTTP API, found stuck overflow, something like that in there, or SQL junction, what have you. Somehow, attacker, maybe for stack overflow, gets code execution within your application. It's not different, really. So, I mean, it's the same situation. You have attacker either within your CI/CD infrastructure, you have attacker in your software execution platform. The situation is no different comparing to the other attacks. The outcome is the same. You have a player there and how you detect. So you could try preventing people from getting in, or you could harden that and making sure that your CI CD pipeline, so for instance, if someone supplies you Terraform model that has a new resource in there that will pop a remote shell when you do Terraform plan, well, use read-only credentials when you do Terraform planning, don't give it admin permissions. See, see where I'm going? But if your security is shit, it doesn't really matter from where they will come in if you don't have the proper detection and remediation in places. So maybe focusing on a way in is not as beneficial compared to building defense in depths and layers and making sure that you're prioritizing defense on what's important comparing to what's less important. Aisha, you have something? Yeah. yeah, so I'm I'm just thinking of where to start because there are so many aspects of this, and I'm glad you raised this. Um, so with obviously organizations uh, claiming or actually doing DevSecOps or DevOps, and where you know there the blurry lines between platform and actual app, and the native services being utilized for the applications is just like clearing and access is at the forefront of everything. Um, whether it is software security or uh, platform security for that matter, because the lines are blurring, right? So this is where I have a pickle with um, security vendors that provide <laughs> that provide the, a bunch of CVEs or the scanning and the scan results. And now that we have these results, findings, what do we do with them? And this is where it, the easiest part is I know where my developers are developing, what they're developing. Let's assume that all that is correct and done. I'm aware, I have visibility, I have proper tagging, I have my platform, CICD platform, and I have proper labeling and it's up, it's, uh, it's got reliability, let's assume. But on top of that, 
once I have, I have the scans and I have the results and I make it a dev problem, right? How am I going to articulate the security context? I'm going to need their knowledge of the app. I'm going to need platform's knowledge of the platform. I'm going to need the security knowledge and put it all together and say, this is an actual risk we need to remediate. Yeah. Right? Otherwise, you'll just be drowning in thousands and thousands of findings. Yeah. And engineers will just be, developers will just be looking at you like, which yeah. one do I fix? If there is a fix. Yeah. And if there's not a fix, then it is security's responsibility to be able to comprehend what the risk is and then be able to put that additional layer. So to understand what your threat threat landscape is, what who who could be your attackers and what could be their motivation is the first key to the point you uh, raised, Andre. Because if you know the ultimate goal they have, then you may know the path of least resistance. If the path of least resistance for them is just compromising an admin uh, sort of an engineer account and, and doing it that way, then you know that that's, that's the door you need to keep shut and put locks on. Yeah. And then hmm. it's a matter of juggling your where to put your attention in, in the defense. Yeah. Uh, there are some companies who provide better context in, you know, looking at the threats. Like I, I, I heard Nissan uh, uh, talk about, for example, putting on an attack um, framework. Mitre, I guess you used. Is it? Oh, sorry, the same, uh, same variation. Yeah, so it, that definitely gives a better context. But at the end of the day, we need these security professionals who don't come from software development most of the time to be able to give context back to developers and this is where we sort of like fall short and yeah. uh, and, and train ourselves basically yeah. if i may intervene meaning i've seen this being tested in many organizations but it constantly fails on scale because just finding those people that can do the triage um that's really hard and then keeping them that's even harder. And if you want to scale your program, let's say you've got one OPSEC engineer per 200 developers, it does not scale nicely. And if this guy leaves, you take six months to find a replacement. And during this time, you've got an overflow going to the developers. In their turn, they're saying, well, this is not connected to the internet and this is not exploitable. And then you need to defend everything to yeah. say. And within two days, you've got 30 developers saying, oh, you don't know what you're doing. We know better. And just getting the genie back to the bottle is almost impossible. So without moving it to be something that is a more reliable system than than humans, I I don't think it's scalable. That's my opinion for that. Yeah. But it's it's an interesting uh, approach. But say that you're balancing things, Audrey, here. I mean, you can't keep really 100% security on your platform running and you can't keep 100% secure that your supply chain is good but if you can uh, raise the bar of both then you're in a good place right something can slip over from the supply chain but hopefully your platform is so secure that it doesn't really matter of course yeah yeah but, but look we, we, we've been there it's nothing new right so PCI DSS yeah. prescriptive uh, it's a prescriptive regulation that requires you to do certain steps. There are non-prescriptive like HIPAA that doesn't tell you yeah. what to do. You take PCI DSS, been around for a long time. What you do with PCI DSS, they tell like you log everything down 
and it forces you to identify where the valuable yeah. stuff is. That's where you process the credit card and where you store that. So you have PCI DSS compliant environment. Yeah. And then everything that touches that has appropriate security level. You test it, right? And then you have stuff that doesn't touch it. You have a less low bar there, so you, you care less. And this is your basic prioritization. Ooh. But that actually gives us a segue. Yeah. Mm-hmm to go back with what we started in a business model as a <laughs> software supply chain company because I've been uh, exposed to the tools that call themselves continuous compliance, like uh, Trata, I think the most known one, the Secure Frame, and they basically build a, your security program for you and show you everything that you do in one place. So it will scan your AWS, it will scan your Docker container, show all the CVs you got there, scan your libraries, get input from Dependable, you have your policies, you have a point security joined in one place. So you could start prioritizing and at least making some kind of cohesive decisions about what you work with. So how how is what you're doing, Nitsan, is different from those continuous compliance tools? Um, so recently I've seen an interesting statistics, uh, one of those compliance tools that somebody posted that almost 98% of the companies that were breached this year actually had SOC 2 certificates and were through this certificate. But wait, before we make it a, a, a laughing matter, it, it actually makes sense. I Meaning, who do you get to the newspapers? Only large companies. Large companies yeah. have those certificates. So it actually makes sense when you think about it in depth. So just saying, yeah, I've got this process. I've written it down. And maybe, as you said, I took some open source and, and put it to my CICD. Uh, I, I don't think it, it really creates the sense that you are solving the security problem. I think it goes back to what Aisha said. You're addressing the, the compliance side of it. But driving the action from that moment until the moment that you're actually immune to certain vectors of attack, that's a long journey from what the continuous compliance companies leave you with to actually figure out, and this is where Matthias started the discussion, saying, okay, so who do I need to bring the issue? What are all the list of issues? How do I prioritize them? And how do I make sure that they're actually checked? But part of these are vulnerabilities within open source. Some of them are configuration issues. Some of them are just pure mistakes that, that we make as, as, as uh, people working in this industry that uh, just five years ago, we thought that there are normal standards ways of working and now we know it's better. So it's really, really um, open-ended. So what we're trying to do is actually look on all the knowledge accumulated in the industry and say, okay, Let's say that, um, I'll take an, an, an easy example. Let's say that you know Log4j. Okay, now I can actually go and help you understand who has this in the code, where is it running in production, how do you do the fast triage to make sure that you understand this is connected to the internet and it impacts your databases, it contains PII, and here's the developer that checked in the code. I see they're still working uh, in your organization. Do you want me to open a Jira ticket and maybe customize the wording to this developer to guide them step by step. Mm-hmm. And if you see somebody that constantly rejects your tickets, uh, recently added something very cool using an LLM, say, okay, let's look on, on the developer history and say, if this guy is rejecting a lot of security issues, let's give him a snippet of code saying, 
use this snippet of code and it will actually show to you how to export your code. So you need to actually understand the dynamics within um, software groups to drive action. And figuring out how to do it end-to-end, -end, I think it, it's, it's one of the things that we are trying to tackle, which is saying, these are the tools that you should have. It's getting to the details saying, can I get you from understanding what are the places that you should look at to here is a secure posture that your organization can be in within X amount of days, hours. But you're saying that you're kind of solving the issue that I have with like, you don't have to go to the developer all the time and like, oh, look at this problem here, look at this problem. Instead, you make making more like a merge request or like a ticket to the developer saying, guess what? You should really fix this. And by the way, if somebody run this code, it will bring everything down for us. So first of all, the answer is yes. Um, we're getting you to the, to the fixed resolution, but I think that we need to take it uh, one step further, which is uh, let's go back to the application security guys that actually need to orchestrate all of this process. We actually understand what is the process that they're doing. So let's say that you're going to release now something with a known vulnerability to something that is internet connected. Then you know the next step saying, don't allow this to get to production. And if it is a constant move, and let's say that we had one big company uh, that had a major issue with Apache Strauss, I think like four years ago, there's no point for you releasing software versions for six months after it is already known to be issues uh, that can be exploited. You should definitely block this. Yeah. Or in other places saying, you know what, I just want to take it to staging instead of production. That makes perfect sense. Go ahead, do it. But you will not be able to push to production. Oh, okay. This. So it has some environment to notice I as well, right? Yeah. So yeah, I'm still having hard hard time visualizing. If if we switch it a little bit <laughs> differently, Nitsan, I'm, I'm pretty sure you are familiar with the conference, uh, so being in the booth at the conference and talking about your product, right? Oh yeah. So imagine Matthias working in the bank, coming towards your booth, <laughs> and you had his attention <laughs> for 15 <laughs> seconds. How would you sell that to Matthias? Okay. So I'll start with the basics saying um, what we're trying to do is help you make sure that the software supply chain is secure from code to cloud by a framework MITRE-like, which is OSCAR. Now that we know every um, attack vector on your organization, we can work with you from the very beginning of the code to the moment that you push it to the cloud and ensure that we understand what are the actions need to be taken to remediate this. And it goes through four stages of building software. From the Git itself, from the access to it, to the configuration, to making sure that you have the right audit and exposure to the internet and public, to the tool testing, which is software composition, analysis, SBOM, study code analysis, secret scanning, and many more to the CICD posture, making sure that you're building things in the right way, not exposing yourself to the internet, like in SolarWinds, for example, making sure that the artifacts are built on the right uh, base images and without known issues within them, and making sure that they are actually right now in the cloud, that everything that you've got in the cloud, you can provide a full lineage to code, making sure that nobody changed it and you know exactly what are your exposures, how to triage them and how to fix them. So this is the journey we're mm -hmm. trying to do, uh, and I invite you to actually look on our uh, on our graphics uh, at the Ox.Security website. Oh, cool, cool, cool. Right. Uh, do you know a company called Costly? Costly? 
like costly. Yeah, I'm not familiar but with them. They changed name, right? Uh, yeah, I think the costly is the latest name. I think uh, the friend of the podcast, Mike Long, is uh, one of the co-founders of the company, and uh, it, I, I think they do something very similar to it. But you have you have run all those agents that would scan your code. You would run the agents in a in a pipeline, and so you will run your agent in your runtime environment. They will report all of that from commit to what's running in production and how it came to be. So it sounds like yeah, I could be wrong. I, I apologize to Mike in that case, but I think they also keep track on all the changes. It's like more like a change log database, like to keep all no, the changes no, that happen no. yeah, and then save them so you can go back and, and see it. I can't remember. Yeah. yeah, I don't think they have as a, stro- a strong focus on uh, software supply chain. They're more like compliance, yeah. showing that what you run, you know what you run. So it's signed, it's built from our software. Yeah. We know it, it was promoted. We have all the evidence that it was approved to be deployed to production, all this yeah. stuff. Yeah. So it's, it's a little bit different, but it feels like the, all of those tools that will converge eventually to something that will provide a comprehensive support for the organization. So we might need to have a couple of tools today and eventually like there's a lot of innovation going on. People doing a search for the perfect market feed and then eventually it will be a consolidation as it usually happens. Yeah, I think to separate between compliance and security, they're usually mixed up, not necessarily the same thing. Yeah, I sort of have oh, I a, <laughs> I have di- sort of a differing, differing opinion to this because at the end of the day, I really like Oxicuity's approach. I think it is the, the way you described it seems to be the right approach in order to solve the problems of once you have these CVs or you know additional vulnerabilities. What does that What does that mean to you? What do you do with them? Is the bit where customization needs to happen from in, from security side. So you can buy the best tool and make the worst out of it. You can buy, you know, the least favorable tool. The way you use it is is, is quite important as well. Um, like I don't know how many of you are using that. Like, this is another aspect I don't want to dive too much into. But for example, GitHub Actions, right? Maybe your GitHub Actions marketplace, third-party actions that people are utilizing nowadays. So even then, there is a new technology change means ch- changing the practice of the dev, dev means another um, security vulnerability that may be introduced to your environment. So even then, it's a, it's, it's going to have to be a mixture of, you know, yes, you're complying. Yes, you have your CSPM, the posture management. You have your CNAP nowadays, what they refer to as, and you bring in your software to, to create that picture for yourself. Um that's definitely where I would put security professionals to learn, 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 and understand um, how your devs work, what your environment is like, what the risk means. Yeah, but, but do you think that developer needs to know more security, or that more security people lean, need to learn how to code? It depends on the culture of development within the organization. So, if the culture natively means that a developer sees security as part of his job, something to be integrated with, 
and that's the mindset that you appropriate you sort of enhance within your organization then that's the ideal place that you would want to be in um in complex environments where there are a lot of integrations with dev may not necessarily know which code is touching where where for the integrations there are um it it will put more responsibility on the security team so i think architecture is important the way you organize is important how you're developing is important to determine that so the traditional is doesn't necessarily mean bad it just you just need to know which one works best for you yeah yeah yeah, i I would maybe take another approach uh, on that saying developers meaning it's very easy to hold them accountable but uh it's not realistic to hold them accountable because they don't know everything it's not their professional and they're being measured on delivering business value usually which means doing things faster so if we want them to be accountable for this and quality and time and, and so on it's i'm not sure it's a realistic uh requirement uh from developers on the other hand application security are definitely understaffed to be able to offload security from developers yeah So I think that right now the, the least evil uh, that we found in the industry is saying, yeah, we'll share the accountability, which basically means that we are just going to try our best not to drop the ball. Yeah. But there is no nothing that works for everybody. But, I mean, it, it, it's really hard. I mean, if, if a developer downloads uh, MySQL lib and it's uh, spelled differently, so you get the wrong package and then start using their production, Uh, it's it's bad. I mean, if I had one star on uh, uh, npm, or then it might have a second look. I mean, that's bad from developer taking the wrong package. But then also, if it goes through the pipeline, don't get detected. That's also bad. Uh, but then I said it only if it starts up in in the production and start talking out on port six six six. Then you want to fish that up also, right? It's it's the combined shame of of everybody. Completely agree. So I think we might be be out of time. We usually ends with some last words here, uh, like what can we say? Like the first things you want to check when you look at uh, develop. Andre and Julian, you can like how, how do you what do you look at packages when you download them? Uh, so you don't take a bad one when you download from from npm or or python or whatever you download it's like uh, stars reviews naming stack overflow but currently i'm at the stage where i i try not to import packages of course it's not the rules you know it's like <laughs> you have to use somebody else's code at some point but, yeah, yeah uh, i find anything. that by just <laughs> Yeah, I find that just by reading the code of the library or the, the thing, I realized it, it's it's not that much code. You understand? And probably 80% of what it does is not for me. And I, I find that I really reduce the amount of things that I needed to learn because I had such a specific use case. Of course, th- this is like not at all the average developer experience. It's more like when you have some edge case. But I don't like frameworks because they just put abstraction on top of abstraction. And I find for me, it's better to learn actually the 
the, the underlying technology and realizing, hey, it's not magic. It's just yeah. code as well that I can understand. It takes more time. Not everybody is keen on doing that. It's more like a preference, you know, like it depends on your personality and what you want to learn and if you're interested by those things. So, yeah, I would say reading the code is the only way I know of judging a project. Yeah. The, the rest is really not meaningful. GitHub stars means nothing to me. And, and uh, Netsa, how, how many times do you see a project with the clean NPM audit? Yeah. <laughs> I guess. I'm not going to yeah. tell you. Zero. 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 I, 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 don't, know, a, I don't know why. It's like, detail, yeah. Yeah. I'll give you some statistics. So uh, we've got on our platform about a thousand uh, different companies and developers uh, working on our platform. So we do have some statistics from our back end. Uh, so most organizations would find themselves, if you look on their dependency tree, with a few tens of thousands of open sources somehow rolling up to their organization. And you think about it that you bring in one open source and let's take the NPM example, you would see that, oh, I just brought with me 10 more and they brought with them. <laughs> and you would get to an, a project that you see within the same project, you've got the same sub-dependency in different versions that nobody figure out how, to, meaning it's really, um, there's no way to actually do this in the right way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think we need to have some understanding, just, you know, like we're humans and we had in COVID, nobody is perfect and nobody is fully secured. We'll need to do our best and uh, try to make sure that we, we stay uh, vigilant from threats and, and, and make sure that the rest is solved by the authorities. Yeah. And I said, this is the last for, for you then. Where do you go when you look at a project first? Do you go to the code, CSED, or the AWS environment? When you're like, okay, I'm going to look at this environment here to secure it. Where's your first stop? So, for, because of my role, the environment, the platform, and the CICD platform itself, as a platform, and also if you're depending on how, how you deploy yeah. uh, the deployment bits, those are the best that I go with coupled with like AppSec yeah. engineers. So it's a it's a joint effort of understanding whatever vulnerability we're looking at. Let's say you, you've got a scan result and their PR is raised for it, the code owner is aware of that, then there's still some further context into what that means to the to the environment. Like what is the blast radius? What is the potential impact? Um, is it priority? That's where you do sort of like a risk assessment of it and then give it priority. So that's that's where I would ideally want to be. And then everyone brings in their expertise, platform being one um, on my segregation is definitely key, makes life much easier. Like if you're dealing with PCI, for example, segregate, segregate, segregate. Yeah. Um, um, apart from that, you've just got to, if you're dealing with complex large environments, you've just got to look at prioritization yeah. from, from risk point of view. Yeah, and I think with that, any last words or what do you say? We will, yeah, Julian here has, yeah. I, I think like the, there is one thing I tend to do now that I think about it a little bit is I look at the, the date of the last commit because most projects oh. have dependency and I know that if the com the last commit was like four years ago, 
and they have a lot of dependency. I'm pretty sure they haven't updated it. And that really bring my trust down into the project. But if I see that it's something like they, they keep up and they have like dependabot install or those kind of things, I, I'm very much more keen on using that project because it's kind of autopilot, you know? Yeah. It's like, hey, mm. it, I, I know that at least this is working. Now we can go on to a big yeah, rant so. about Semver. I think we can show on that. Let's not go there today. But you see, it's a difference between mistake, the human mistake, and the policy. As a seesaw, you go to jail for the policy, not for the, yeah. not for the mistake. If you, have, if, if you have a policy of keeping up your security, updating your dependencies and stuff like that, then there is some certain trust you could put at the is open source project or organization if there is a policy if, if they think about that but if there is and mistakes they happen right it, it's normal yeah so look look for the look policy, policy. And i think with that we will uh, end this podcast thank you all for tuning in you have been listening to the DevSecOps podcast with matthias andre and julian for more podcast and notes go to the webpage devsecops.fm thanks for tuning in